Good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. This is BRN AM for Thursday, December 21st, 2023. And our top story today, U.S. college closings worry educators. Joining me now to discuss this and a lot more is Rachel Byrne. She's with the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association. Rachel, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. We're going to talk about higher education this morning, and I want to take a step back and get your perspective on this. How are, in general, uh, large, small, medium, how are larger, how are uh, higher education institutions doing these days financially and uh, with their enrollment? So generally, institutions are sort of at a plateau. They, you know, 10, 15 years ago, enrollments were really growing. Um, and then before the pandemic, um, enrollment started to drop. So for about a decade, institutions have seen enrollment declines. And then with the pandemic, there was a really steep decline. Now institutions are, it's the decline is plateauing. It's still a slight decline, but it's it's pretty much staying consistent. So it hasn't yet gotten back to pre-pandemic levels, but generally speaking, most institutions are kind of in a status quo right now. Yeah, and, and when it comes to the smaller colleges and universities, um, you know, the big, the big colleges, big universities, either they're public or they're private, but they might have large endowments and so they can weather certain storms. But how about our, our smaller uh, institutions, how are they doing with respect to their larger peers? That, I mean, that's exactly right. That the, the smaller institutions have less of that uh, in buffer from an endowment, but also have fewer um, economies of scale. So when they lose students, uh, that's a pretty big hit to their tuition and fee revenue. Um, so compared to their the larger institutions, smaller institutions are struggling more. Um, and of the closures that we've seen over the past 10 years, the majority of them have been relatively small schools. And and what, you know, I guess for, it's been a while since I've been in school, uh, college, um, but I went to a relatively small school. Um, the small, small universities, smaller colleges have an important role to play in our higher education system. What, what, what's the negative impact uh, beyond the obvious of, of not having some of these schools exist? Maybe they're c- closing, maybe they're merging with other schools, but w- what's the direct impact to the students and to the communities in which they're centered? Yeah, that's a great, a great question and a great point. So obviously the direct impact to a student who is experiencing a, an institutional closure or merger is that um, they may lose all of the progress that they have made, or at least a portion of the progress that they've made and a lot of the momentum that they have towards completion. Uh, so it, it can have financial impacts, it can have sort of long-term academic completion impacts, but then you're right that when an institution closes in a community, now there might be prospective students in that community who no longer have an institution that's close by. Uh, and we know that the closer an institution is to a student, the more likely they are to attend. Uh, so now you, you're sort of limiting a student's options, but then there is also like the uh, communal impact of the, uh, the, the students and the, the economic boost that an institution brings. You know, it, it provides jobs, it brings in, um, family members who come to visit, it might, if they have sports, there might be games and people are coming to 
to watch the games and spending money in restaurants and hotels. So there's a, a broader impact beyond just, you know, the educational impact on students. There's a really like a whole community around an institution that's being impacted when they close. Are there certain geographical areas of the country that are doing worse uh, at the small college level than others, you know, maybe the Northeast or the Southern Southeast? Are there areas that are worse off than others? Yeah, just just looking at some of the data, the, the two areas that are that tend to have more recently have had the most uh, enrollment declines are areas where the birth rate is declining. And so demographically speaking, there are there are smaller high school graduating cohorts each year. So fewer potential students to attend at least a local institution. And those in the past five years have tended to be the Midwest and the Northeast. So those are just two areas where there's uh, just just smaller like K through 12 cohorts. Um, so, so fewer potential students. Is, are, are you finding, at least in the research, that certain students, maybe they want to forgo a four-year school or maybe they don't feel like they're ready and maybe they go to a two-year community college as a first step. I would imagine that, you know, look, we all, when I was a kid growing up, they, you know, my parents said, you got to go to the high school and then you got to go to college. I'm not sure that that is what every student now hears. So is, is that part of the disruption that, that you're seeing? Maybe kids are taking a little bit of time off. They're like, I don't, I don't know what I want to do. And maybe I don't want to go to a four-year. I want to go to a two-year. Yeah, so there are a couple parts to that. So I think the first thing to note is that community colleges have not had the significant enrollment declines that the four-year sector has had. And th they did during the pandemic, um, but they have recovered much better than other sectors. So it is true that, that yes, like community college students are still going to community colleges. Um, I think there are a couple of pressures for why students might be making that choice. I think one of them is that the uh, the job market has been relatively strong. Obviously, there's fluctuations, but generally speaking, there's a strong like there's demand for workers, and there's a a growing acceptance of workers who have who do not have any college education. So there's there are opportunities for individuals with a high school diploma to go straight into the workforce. Um, I think there's also uh, a sort of growing um, trend towards these uh, technical careers. So we have re like really fast growing in the medical field and, and technology and manufacturing. And those are often two year, one to two year certificates or associate degrees. And so students have this incentive to go into those programs. Um, I think there, there is some pressure as, you know, there's obviously pressure to transfer from the two to four year. Uh, and we still see that happening, but I, I think you're right that there is some sort of um, like substitution effect that's happening away from the four year into the two year sector. Yeah. It seems like that. I need to go to a quick commercial break, but Rachel, just, you know, just kind of rhetorically, it seems like that pandemic really had an impact in so many ways. One of which really directly impacted, uh, higher education. Rachel, as I said, I need to take a very quick break. We come back, we'll talk more about closures and maybe how to improve higher education in the smaller schools and universities. You're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN AM. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, 
and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses, I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Welcome back. We're joined this morning by Rachel Burns of the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association. Rachel, thanks so much for staying with us. Really appreciate you hanging around for segment number two this morning. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, it's a, a fun conversation, really important conversation. So, Rachel, if I'm if I'm a policymaker watching the program, and hopefully there are lots of policymakers watching uh, your notes and, and your comments today, um, what's the takeaway here? I mean, are, are we in a paradigm shift uh, that is officially eliminating smaller schools, or are there ways to kind of get back to? I wouldn't say the regime we were under, but uh, maybe a new hybrid approach to that would bolster some of these smaller schools? Yeah, I, I don't think there's, you know, it, there's no death sentence for small schools. I think there is the potential for there to be a rebound uh, post-pandemic and for institutions to continue to thrive. Uh, I think there are a couple of things that policymakers can do. So at the institution level, I think it's very important for institutions to be honest with students about the financial situation or the accreditation situation so that students have all of the completely transparent information about the status of their institution. So they know if it is necessary for them to start thinking about transfer to another institution. Um, that's a really hard position for an institution to put itself into because it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy of financial struggle, telling students that you're financially struggling and then students decide to leave and then that just makes the situation worse. But for the sake of students, it's really important to be transparent about that. Um, beyond the institution level, I think the responsibility for preventing closures, but also helping students in the event of closure, it lies at the state level. So every state has an agency, a state higher education agency, and they have varying levels of responsibility or authority but at the minimum, institutions require that, or I'm sorry, agencies require that institutions are authorized to operate in the state and they have to go through this uh, formal legal process in order to, to operate. Um, one component of that, um, we at SHIO argue, should be a stronger uh, contingency plan for what happens 
in the event of closure. So rather than simply closing, putting a sign on the door, telling students we're closed, figure it out, there should be a really slow phase out where students have an option to transfer to another institution, to finish their, their degree. If they're very close, they have you know, a year to finish um, and to help students through that whole process so they're not left trying to pick up the pieces on their own. Yeah, a really good point. I mean, can you imagine having to get a transcript from an institution that's closed to get your credits transferred to another institution? That that at least strikes me as a, a, an important bridge. Uh, let me ask you about untapped demographics and, um, you know, maybe older Americans going back to school. There seems to be some reports that, you know, you retire, but maybe you don't retire. Maybe you retire to another career. How about bridging the gap with maybe that that group of, of that cohort of, of potential students. It seems to me that maybe the smaller, you know, and again, I'm not an expert, but it seems like that that is an untapped, potentially untapped group of students that could bolster financially uh, through different programs uh, to, to learn new skills, uh, to go back to work, but do it in, in something that they want to pursue and something they, they enjoy. Yeah, it absolutely is. So I think there, there's two types of, of adult learners there. There's the ones who have a career and are just thinking about a career change. And so going back for some additional skills, but there are also, there's a, a, a large number of adults who have some college and no degree. So they have attended for a year or two and then left without attaining any credentials. So for them, it's especially important for them to be brought back into the uh, college or university system so they can complete that credential because they've incurred the costs associated with the degree, but haven't then like realized the benefit of it because it hasn't been earned yet. So those are those are two areas where states are making steps, uh, promoting programs and initiatives to really bring those those students back to institutions. Yeah, and I'm thinking back some of the technical things we were talking about before. I'm thinking about like if you wanted to be a programmer or you wanted to do something around artificial intelligence, that'd be that'd be great. Because a lot of seniors you know, I count myself, I'm not a senior, but I'm older, I'm middle age, and I could think of having a, you know, I'm 30 years in my career, but I could have a, a completely different career. Lastly, let me ask you about technology. And uh, during the pandemic, we leveraged Zoom, which you and I are on now, Teams, Skype, I don't leave, Google Meets, I don't leave anybody out. Um, how can technology help bridge the gap if, 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 a, if a smaller four-year school doesn't offer um, virtual classes? Is that a way to encourage uh, enrollment, encourage participation, and also help fund the school? Yes, it is. I think one of the, I hesitate to even call it a silver lining, but a silver lining of the pandemic was that institutions realized they could deliver, uh, they could deliver courses remotely. And, and that opened up this new avenue for institutions who maybe haven't considered it before, that they could reach students across the country or across the globe uh, through virtual, classrooms. So that has become, I think, a, a strategy towards dealing with some of these enrollment declines is to expand the pool of students who you might consider eligible for enrollment beyond local or even, you know, regional to now across the country or across the world. I, I think that's been one of the sort of lessons learned of the pandemic for a lot of institutions. Yeah, certainly. And, and last question, what about like a buddy like a peer type of relationship. So if you have the larger institution and you kind of, I know there's some, you know, and you have like a, 
I don't want to call it a satellite because that's not the right answer. It's still autonomy, but you have the support of a larger institution. Maybe there's some sharing of resources, like, you know, bigger institution A, which has enrollment of, I don't know, 50,000, and then smaller institution B uh, that has an enrollment of like 10,000, and they can share professors and teachers and other resources. Is that another way to bridge the gap? Again, autonomy, governance, another issue. No one likes to lose their control. I totally get that. But is that another potential solution? We see those happening sometimes. I know uh, the state of Georgia is pretty infamous in higher ed for having done some of these sort of like quasi mergers where institutions remain separate but share resources. Um, they may be a case study for sometimes getting it right and sometimes maybe having room for improvement. It is an extremely fraught um, and political and potentially expensive right. process. So it, I think it, it, it's it's certainly an option, especially if that smaller institution is struggling. Um, it just would take a lot of buy-in from both sides up front yeah. from the beginning to really be clear about exactly what you said, autonomy, because that is that is so crucial to an institution's mission. Yeah, because you don't want to be perceived as just being someone's stooge, for lack of a better, I don't know what the proper education term is, but being someone's proxy maybe is the better word. Um, you want to maintain your autonomy. And, and every school is unique. I mean, I went to a smaller school. It's a unique culture. You don't want to lose that. Rachel, well, it sounds like uh, there's a lot of work to be done. We really appreciate you joining us on the program, and we look forward to having you back again very soon. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. And that wraps up this episode of BRN AM. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives? Then check out our website. We're back again tomorrow with another edition of BRN AM. Love a very special guest. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe. Keep on saving. And don't forget... Roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio-only podcasts, so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device.